Thanks so much, uh, Quint. Uh, good morning, uh, Parkers Church. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, I'm super excited uh, that you're here with us for week one of the, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this is going to be a life-changing book for, uh, for many of us. For us as a church, it's going to shape us and form us, and, uh, uh, and I'm very excited to get into it uh, this morning. I, I just want to take a couple minutes before we actually um, dive into the text to explain uh, why we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you've been around at Parkers for a while, you'll know that this is the second uh, gospel that we're going through. We went through the book of John, the gospel of John. Over, We did it pretty slowly. It took us a while. And, and now we're into Mark. And um, I just want to explain why we're doing a, another gospel. Um, somebody once said that all of the Bible is helpful, but it's not all equally helpful. And I think uh, that's true. And particularly when you get to the gospels, what you get is a focus on the person and the work of Jesus. Laser-like, uh, magnifying, zooming in uh, on the person and the work of Jesus. And, and there's another principle that says that what we behold, we become. What we gaze at, what we look at, what we fixate on, we, it ends up shaping us. We become uh, like that. And, and so with good reason, we want to regularly be staring at the Gospels. We want to be staring at the person and considering the work of Jesus, so that over a period of time, we, we end up looking like him. We, as we behold him, we become like him. And so it's really good for us as a church to spend a lot of our time uh, in the Gospels, looking at the person of Jesus, and like I said, considering uh, what he's done. Uh, these days, I think it's uh, really important. I think there's a lot of confusion around uh, who Jesus is, uh, around not only who, um, who he is, uh, was and is, but also what he did and, and what, what his coming into the world meant and what, what he taught. And uh, for us to be in a gospel allows us uh, week after week to be shaped by his words, to, to take him at his word, not to uh, invent a God of our own imagination uh, or preferences or desires, but to let God speak for himself and for us to see Jesus for who he is in the gospels presented to us and challenging us and encouraging us and shaping us. And so uh, I, I pray that over the coming weeks and months, we would be deeply shaped by uh, ongoing consideration of Jesus. Um, it's always good uh, as you start a new book to consider who wrote it. And so uh, I want to spend uh, just a couple of minutes looking at, at Mark. Uh, Mark wasn't a, an apostle, a disciple of Jesus uh, the original 12, um, but we do know a little bit about him uh, from other parts of Scripture. Um, he has an interesting uh, journey uh, to get to being uh, a, a gospel author. Uh, we read in Acts 13 of him uh, uh, deserting, as the word Paul used, deserting uh, Paul and Barnabas on one of their missionary trips. <clears throat> they would go around from um, town to town, area to area, uh, city to city, uh, preaching the gospel and, and, and seeking to plant churches. And on one of those trips, uh, Mark, uh, facing a particularly difficult um, section, Mark uh, abandons them and he goes back to uh, Jerusalem. And this causes a sort of a knock-on effect uh, later on when, when Paul, Paul and Barnabas are, are trying to figure out where they're going to go next and who they're going to take with them. Uh, Paul's got no time for, for Mark. He, he doesn't want him to come along. And Barnabas and Mark were cousins and so obviously things got a bit more complicated and Barnabas ends up choosing Mark to go with him 
and Paul takes Silas, and actually they have a sharp disagreement. It's reconciled later, but they have a sharp disagreement, almost a parting of ways over the usefulness of Mark. Uh, Fast forward to the end of 2 Timothy, Paul's right near the end of his life, and he's writing a letter to Timothy, and he says this, he says, uh, send to me John Mark, send to me Mark because he's useful to me in the ministry. Something had happened between deserting the guys on the mission trip uh, to becoming useful in ministry, so much so that Paul asked for him to come to him in his last uh, days because he was useful to him in the ministry. And it's such an encouragement to us. And, and now we have the gospel uh, according to Mark. Uh, God is able to take our wipeouts and our failures and turn them around. Um, and uh, failure doesn't have to be final. God can redeem. He's the God of second chances. It's amazing. Just even looking at the author of this book, how deeply encouraging this gospel is to us. So that is Mark, our author. I want you to open up a Bible or a phone, follow along with me. There will be verses on the screen next to me. Mark chapter 1, we're going to read from verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right out the gate, here we see, and Mark, Mark gives almost a, a, a subtitle, maybe even a title to his gospel. It says in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what we're getting in uh, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a, it's a bold statement that Mark makes right off the bat there, and he spends the rest of his gospel qualifying it and explaining how Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and all the news about him, all these events, this is almost like a documentary of the life of Jesus. It's not, it's not systematic, it doesn't necessarily explore theological themes, um, like some of the other Gospels. This is a simpler Gospel, almost like I said, like a documentary about Jesus. But right, there it is. That's what you get in, uh, in Mark. It's like, here you go. And, and for us, as we start this book, this is what we're getting for the next months and months as we spend time in Mark. We're getting the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark moves into an Old Testament prophecy there in verse 2. He says it's written by Isaiah the prophet and it is a part of it. It's Isaiah 40. It's a, it's, a, it's a conflation of Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 together. It's, there's more Isaiah than Malachi, and that's why it just says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, but you're not going to find that exactly there. Uh, and, and it's a description of one who would come to prepare the way. 
this voice in the wilderness crying out, preparing the way for the Lord, making the paths uh, straight. And other gospels have an even, even, an even extended um, uh, prophecy, a passage there describing the work and the ministry of John the Baptist. And here, the rest of this passage that I want us to look at this morning is a description of some of the ministry and the person of John the Baptist. He is this one about whom the Old Testament prophesied would come to prepare the way for Jesus' coming and his message. And so let's look at three things this morning we can learn from John the Baptist. There's three things that we can learn from the John the Baptist. The first thing that we learn is that truth-telling beats ear-tickling. Truth-telling beats ear-tickling. I'll explain it as we go through this. From verse 4, it says that John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. These days, it's, uh, it can be pretty hard to find people who just tell it like it is, who just um, speak with like a prophetic boldness and authority and clarity and truthfulness. Uh, many people are afraid of speaking the truth. They lack courage um, to actually say things as they actually are. Um, I, I'm not saying, uh, and you might be thinking, Doug, I disagree with you, and I'm not, I'm not saying that you, you, there aren't people who are bold and outspoken <clears throat> uh, to their own tribe uh, or with all of their cheerleaders of their tribe cheering them on, saying, yeah, 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 you're right, you're right. It's one thing to say hard things or truthful things, to a bunch of your cheerleaders, it's another thing to say something to people who will strongly disagree with you and to call them to something, to almost speak from another world into their world, calling them to something else, uh, 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 calling them, as, as it is in here, uh, John, to call them to repentance and to the uh, confess, confession of their sins. Um, you don't find uh, people like that anymore. Most people just go with the flow, even those who claim to be Outspoken. If you dig a little bit more, uh, they, most of them are just speaking to their own tribes and choirs. Uh, and and p- part of this is because how we're wired as people. None of us like to be uh, rejected or pushed away for what we believe or what we say. And that's had massive effects on people. You've, you find some people just exit, exiting social media because they're just sick of being uh, cancelled or shut, shut down or they're terrified that that's going to happen to them. They get just silenced in the public uh, sphere. Uh, we, we all, and not even necessarily in those, on, on those platforms, but even with your friends, just think about you know, standing around the bra, you know, when we're allowed a bra uh, again, uh, and, 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 and a topic comes up and you, you know that that's something you should probably mention or speak against, but, but you lack courage. Because you know if you speak, maybe the bra is going to go south. Like a family dinner, a uh, topic comes up, you know, religion, politics, something else, uh, and you think, that's not true, I should speak up about that, but uh, this is going to be really awkward, and I don't want to be silenced or shunned and stuff, so our human inclination is to withdraw and to lack courage, sometimes when we need it uh, the most. And here you see John, quite different to many of us, proclaiming a baptism of repentance, calling people to the confession of their sins. Now this is, this is sort of a bolt out of the blue uh, into, the, into the context, into the time there. John, you'll see here, he calls both Jews and Gentiles to this baptism of, of repentance. And uh, 
some of the context is that uh, when, when people, proselytes, those who joined uh, the nation of Israel, when they decided to become, as it were, Jewish, join that nation, they would baptize themselves as a sign of them joining uh, this covenant community of God's. But there was no baptism of, of Jews one by another. This is a new thing that John um, is doing, evidently, amongst people. And, and this message of calling them to repentance is worth digging into a little bit. He's preaching the gospel. It says in the other gospels that he used many other words to speak to them. And he's calling them to repentance. Repentance is a changing of your mind about something. So he, he's looking at the way that they're living uh, remember, he's living out in the wilderness. We'll go into that in a bit more detail. He's, he's somebody who's sort of outside of them. He's living out in the wilderness. He's dressed all weird. He eats weird food. And he comes and he speaks to them almost from another land and addresses their sin with great authority and power. And they are, they are cut to the heart in many ways. It says that many people, crowds upon crowds, came to him from that area all the way from Jerusalem, Tons of people were responding to the message. God was doing something in preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. But this message is repentance. It's like if I see something in your life and I, and I call it out and I say, you need to stop doing that. You need to change your mind about it. And then your behavior looks different. You change your behavior because your mind has been changed about something. That's what repentance is. We, we feel um, the conviction around a, a way that we think or a behavior that we're doing and we feel called to, to change our minds or to turn around. We've been walking that direction. Now we're walking that direction because our hearts and our minds have been changed about something. That's what John is calling them to. And the people are responding. You, you have to know that this is not an easy message. Uh, even though people are responding in, in, in masses, in lots of crowds, this is a hard message. You see in the life of John the Baptist, this escalates. This is not a man who is scared of speaking the truth. Eventually, this is what gets him killed. He speaks the truth to Herod, who was trying to marry his brother's wife, and John was having none of it. He said, this is wrong. And he spoke, as here it comes, he spoke the truth to power. That's a wonderful phrase people like to use. He spoke the truth to power, and he ended up losing his head because of it. That's what courage looks like. That's what boldness and, and through the work of the Holy Spirit looks like. And I think the challenge for us looking at the life of John the Baptist is, where is our courage? Where is our authority? Where is our deep desire to speak the truth in love? When we see uh, areas where, now we don't want to be the people who are just riding around being the truth police and just speaking into every area and say, like, well, Doug said we need to go and speak the truth in love and be courageous. I'm not saying you should be on your high horse like that, but there are many times we have to acknowledge that where we, God has given us opportunity or there's been things that uh, because of, God's righteousness at work in us, we, we get righteously angry about and we want to speak against those things. And yet many times in God's church, we lack courage. Many of us as disciples of Jesus, we lack courage. May God help us as we learn from John the Baptist again this morning to have a spirit-empowered courage to speak the truth with boldness because this is different. The alternative that I spoke about is ear tickling. The alternative I spoke about is ear tickling. If you Turn in your phone or Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. It says this, For a time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. 
They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. What Paul is warning Timothy about here is saying, look, the time's going to come when people are just going to gather for themselves teachers who just, who just tell them what their, what their ears want to hear. They just sort of tickle their ears. Oh, that's nice. Oh, I like what you're saying. No, no confrontation. No call to repentance. No call to the confession of your sins. Oh, just nice things. Nice things that we like to listen to. Oh, myths. Oh, that, that's interesting. Ooh. And we just gather. This is, there'll be a time where people just gather these teachers. They heap them up. Because no one wants a John the Baptist rolling in saying, hey, look, this is you. You need to cut it out kind of thing. Calling it straight. Um, there's a lot of pushback. And even culturally now. I mean, you know what it's like. We... We, sh- we almost shun people who are a bit like that. They get a, get a, get a bit excited. We all want everybody to just get along. You know, don't have any John the Baptist come and just point out people's sin. That's so, no, that's not the vibe. That's not the way that we do things now. And yet we need to be mindful as the disciples and the followers of Jesus that we don't become ear ticklers. We just tell people oh, what they want to hear. They may love us. They may like us. They may think we're amazing. But Jesus said, so woe to you when, when everyone thinks well of you. There's something wrong if everyone thinks well of you all the time. You're just an ear tickler. You're not a truth teller. May God help us and put courage in us through the Holy Spirit to be truth tellers and not just ear ticklers. And I'm not just talking about how we talk to the world outside us. I'm talking about how we talk to ourselves and amongst us as a church. How we, how we raise issues with one another. How I, how I raise issues. If you're a part of this church, uh, or any church where you hear preaching where everything you hear is just easy and nothing ever rubs against you or confronts you or challenges you, you're probably not hearing enough of the gospel. You're not hearing enough of the word of God because the word of God comes against the bits of our lives that don't look anything like Jesus and it wants to chop them off and put them to death. If you just get encouraged, you know, like the preachers are just fanboys of yours, like, Lord willing, we won't be that and our church won't be that. We don't want to be like the truth hecklers. We want to be truth tellers in love and in grace, but not ear ticklers. May God help us in that. The second thing that we learn from uh, John the Baptist is that missional discomfort beats suburbianity. Missional discomfort beats suburbianity. Have a, have a look at John's life here in verse 6. It says, John wore camel, a camel hair garment, with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, just before you think that everyone back then wore camel hair garments, Jesus sandals and ate locusts and honey, uh, the reason Mark mentions it here is because that's not how everyone lived. And we have multiple uh, biblical references and extra biblical references to show us what the culture was like at the time. Now, John was an outlier. He lived in the wilderness. He dressed, I mean, this sounds awful, a camel hair garment. It's sort of in the, in, the, in the school of the prophets. Elijah's described exactly the same way, wearing this kind of garment with a leather belt, you know, living off the land um, kind of thing. John is different to everyone who was around him. Uh, you may not remember, but remember John is the son of a priest. His dad, Zechariah, was a priest. And that's what happened back then is that if your dad was a priest, then you became a priest. And the, the community would have cared for Zechariah and his family and John, if John had chosen so, he could have become a priest, uh, lived a life of relative uh, comfort and, and, and ease. The people would have taken care of them, performing his priestly duties. He could have gone down that path, 
But as was prophesied over his life, and obviously his parents did a great job of discipling him and raising him up in the prophetic words over his life, um, it had been prophesied, look, this guy's going to be different. He's going to be different. He's going to be one who prepares the way for Jesus, and, he, and you know, the whole bunch of stuff's going to happen um, to him. So he shuns comfort for mission. He shuns a life of comfort and rather embraces a life of mission. Uh, he was single-minded in this mission that, that God had given him. And it, and it came at quite a cost. I mean, here he is um, living in solitude out in the wilderness, uh, dressed in not, not the greatest clothing, and eating locusts and wild honey. I mean, that, I've never chowed a locust, but I, I don't plan to either. I'm not even a massive fan of honey. It's an awful diet. Um, and and, and this, this following Jesus and following through on this mission of God comes at a massive cost to, to John the Baptist. And uh, there's another layer on this of, of his withdrawal from society. I think this is part of what makes John such a powerful voice and so adequate to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus is that he, he wasn't wrapped up with the people. He shunned a lot of those comforts. He shunned a lot of the noise, the community, everything. He was alone out in the wilderness. There's something about retreating and being on your own where the noise dies down and God is able to speak more clearly. Uh, if, if we want to be as people, as the followers of Jesus, we want to live with a, a prophetic voice into our culture. We want to come and speak into our culture and into situations with, with a spirit-given, spirit-guided, prophetic voice that sounds different to the culture around us and cuts across it and calls people to something different, the ways of the kingdom of God. We need to retreat and, and be with God more. If we're just immersed always in the noise and in the culture, being discipled by it all the time, we end up just looking like the culture that we're a part of and we have no prophetic voice into it. The the life of John the Baptist is a massive challenge to us to withdraw, to be with God, to be on our own, um, to retreat a bit from the culture so that we can see it more clearly and speak into it with greater authority. And there is a massive contrast between missional discomfort and suburbianity. What do I what do I mean by suburbianity? It's not, a, it's not a phrase I came up with. I heard it a while ago. I think it's even a book. I love it. I love the phrase suburbianity. It is a form of Christianity that, that looks like the suburbs, basically. Uh, it's a form of Christianity where, where comfort and safety are primary things. Comfort and safety are primary things. That, that, that's what it means to have a relationship with God, to be a follower of Jesus. Those are prized things. God, God exists um, to bless us now. And in his blessing work over us, uh, he, is, he is seen as a, as a therapist, as a provider, and as a protector. He's a therapist to our needs, both emotional and spiritual. He comes along to help us. His job is to provide for, for our needs and to provide everything that we need and to protect us. Uh, that's a, a big thing in the suburbs is protection. Security companies, you know, you want to live in the suburbs. It's not like downtown. You want to live in a safe place. And, and that is suburbianity. Many of us think that that is why God exists. And that's the highest 
goal. If, if you can acquire that, uh, wonderful. And yet, we have to acknowledge that there's something about increasing levels of comfort that, that diminish our sense of dependence on God. Let me say that again. There's something about increasing levels of comfort that diminish our sense of dependence on God. It just, it just numbs us a little bit to the desperate need that we need God to provide, to protect, to help us, to keep us safe. We lose the, the edge of mission because the suburbs are just chilled. They are designed uh, not for edginess but for comfort. And that's what I mean by suburbianity. And I'm, I, I, I've been distressed lately in conversations with some people. I felt I really wanted to, to speak into this. Um, you know, the world's changed, and people can, now, people can now work from many different places. And it seems to have been, at least in some of the circles of conversation I have, a bit of an exodus from Johannesburg of people who now can work from anywhere and who are choosing to go and live in all different kinds of places because it's more comfortable to live there. And in some of the conversations I've had with people, the, the wording that's come out is that the thing that's driving their decision of where to go is not the mission of God. It's the levels of comfort that they can live in while they're there. The, 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 the sense of mission is blunted. And, and I'm not begrudging anyone moving somewhere for, for various reasons. Family, the sense of mission, schooling, climate. Like, I mean, there's a million different reasons why people move. All I want to put out there and challenge you is if you're considering moving or you're thinking of those things and comfort is your main driver, I think you're missing the point. I think the point of the kingdom of God is not, it's, it's not suburbianity. It's missional discomfort. There's something in us that makes us sharp and effective when we're willing to become uncomfortable on mission with God, in deep dependence uh, on him and with him for all of our needs. God is able to use us. When we slide into increasing levels of comfort, we become, I suppose, almost spiritually fat, slow, and lazy. And, we, and it's not that we're not Christians anymore. We may still know God, love Jesus, but we just become spiritually flabby and soft. And God can't really use people like it. He uses people like John the Baptist, who are willing to go and put themselves in areas of missional discomfort. And God can use them mightily. May God help us in this. I think it's summed up uh, really well in an interaction that Peter has with Jesus. Jesus has been predicting his, his, his mistreatment, his arrest, his mistreatment, his death, and his resurrection. He's been sharing this with his disciples. And in Mark uh, 8, verse 32, we dive in here, and it says, uh, speaking of Jesus, it says he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. No, 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 no. No, 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 Jesus, this is not going to happen to you. I.e., rebuking Jesus for all of this like negative talk, you know, no, we can't let this happen. Jesus looks at him and he, what happens? Verse 33, Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It's that last bit. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Friends, I'm not saying that uh, every time you trundle towards and, 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 and engage and long for suburbianity, you know, <laughs> Jesus is going to come to us and say, get behind me, Satan. I want to call us to that last bit there. What do we have in mind? The concerns of God, 
or the concerns of man. The concerns of God or the concerns of man. As we make decisions about where we will live, how we will live, what we will do, what we will give our lives to, may God help us, like John the Baptist, to have in mind the concerns of God above the concerns of man. This is a work that God does in us. The last thing that we see in the life of John the Baptist is that worship of Jesus beats the worship of self. The worship of Jesus beats the worship of self. In verse 7, John proclaims, One who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. Some context here, the disciples, as they followed their rabbis around all over the place at this time, uh, in this context, uh, they would do everything for the rabbi. They would go and get them food and make them comfortable and attend to lots and lots of their needs. But there's one, there's one thing that they wouldn't do. They wouldn't touch their feet. They wouldn't touch their feet. That was, a, that, was a servant's, that was a servant's job. Disciples didn't touch the feet of the rabbis. And here comes John the Baptist. And he says, look, I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to do the servant's job of untying the sandals of Jesus. He is more powerful than I am. I'm baptizing you with water. That was the task I was given. He is coming and he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't have time to go into it now, but there was only one. There was only one. The Jews understood this. There was only one who has power and authority to baptize with the Holy Spirit, and that's God himself. He's making a messianic prophetic statement just in that, that this, this one, Jesus, he is God himself. He is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, he says um, later on. I mean, John had... A, a super effective ministry. You hear the descriptions of him, and there's just tons and tons of people coming out to him. Like every preacher wants this kind of ministry, maybe not the living in the desert kind of vibe, depending on the kind of people, but uh, everyone wants a ministry like that where you're preaching and people are confessing their sins and they're getting baptized and stuff. It's like he's successful in that sense. And, and, and listen also to what Jesus says about John the Baptist. In, in Luke 7, uh, Jesus says that no, no one born of a woman is, is greater than John. I mean, that's astounding. He's just like, basically, there's never been a better dude than John the Baptist because everyone's been born of a woman. Like, there's no dude better than John. That's a commendation from Jesus himself. But for John, it was all about Jesus. For John, it was all about Jesus. He felt unworthy next to him. He says, I don't even feel worthy to touch his feet got this pumping ministry. Jesus thinks I'm the best dude that's ever been born next to him. I'm unworthy to even get near his feet. He says um, elsewhere in John, he says, I must, he must become greater, I must become less. He must increase, I must decrease. You see, he had, he had a clear idea of who the Messiah was and his role and his position next to, next to the Messiah. He knew he was just the one preparing the way. The way didn't point to him. He knew he was the one sign pointing all the way to Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about him. Guys, don't look at me. Don't fixate on me. He was just, he knew his job, his role, his calling was just in all of his life to point people to Jesus, the Lamb of God. Not able to, not, not, not willing, not satisfied to worship himself, to have others worship him. He understood that the worship of Jesus is far greater than the worship of self. As we close this morning, I want to encourage us, I want to challenge us that much like John the Baptist, how we live can 
um, be a massive work in preparing the way for Jesus to work in the lives of people around us. It'd be a, a massive influence in, 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 in getting people ready to encounter uh, Jesus. Speaking the truth in love to people. Uh, that's something, like I said, we need God's help and power and grace and the work of the Spirit to actually speak the truth covered in love and grace, but actually to speak, not just to think the truth, to be bold and courageous. Some, somehow God will use that. He'll use our courage. He'll use our trembling knees sometimes, you know, but, but opening our mouths and speaking out uh, in the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit drenched in love. God can use that to prepare the way for Jesus to encounter people and to raise them from death and bring them to life in relationship with him. As we, as we are willing, with God's help, to step out of our suburbianity, our deep, pervasive desire for comfort and pleasure and safety and step out into the kingdom work that God is doing and get on mission with him, being willing to make ourselves uncomfortable, willing to pursue this path of missional discomfort, I think we'll be amazed at what God will do with us. You put your hand up and say, I want to forsake some of those things. I want to do an audit of my life and just see, make sure I'm not too comfortable. I'm not gunning off the comfort in every area of my life. I want to be a bit more uncomfortable for the sake of mission. We're not just whipping our backs saying, ah, oh, you know, we can always do with less. We can make it. We can suffer, suffer, suffer. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we, our inclination is towards comfort. I think God is drawing us and speaking a word to us as a church to say, I think we need to get a bit more uncomfortable for the sake of mission and see what God will do with that as he prepares the way to meet with people and keeping Jesus at the center of our hearts. It's all about him. The worship of Jesus is we're going to see all the way through this gospel. Jesus is the center. He's the worthy one who demands and requires and is worth all of our worship. And it's a joy and a privilege of ours to give all of our lives to the worship of the Son of God. I'm going to pray for us now. Pray God would help us and strengthen us and put courage into us through this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the uh, for your word, thank you for the testimony and the example and the witness of John the Baptist. Thank you for what you called him to, what you empowered him um, to do, the life that you gave him to live in, and his courage in following you wholeheartedly, no matter what it cost him, ultimately his life. And I pray, Father, that you would help us as a church as followers of yours, Jesus, that you would, even, even now, you would pour out your spirit on us to make us truth tellers instead of ear ticklers. Give us great courage to, to speak when, when you're prompting us to speak into people's lives, into situations drenched in love. Help us not to shy back and to prefer being thought of well by people and being loved and liked and rather to follow you in obedience as the people who speak the truth in love. And pray that you'd make us uncomfortable. Father, I pray that you would stir in us a longing to be at work with you on the sharp edge of your mission. And that you'd move us away from our deep desires for comfort and pleasure and safety. And the way we see you meeting all of those things, to see you out in front of us, spearheading your mission and you're calling us to join you. 
And I pray that you'd help us, you'd, you'd spur us on and you'd put fire in us to join you in what you're doing in the world. We, we so desperately need your help and we pray that all of this would come out of a place of just deeper worship, that you would draw us nearer and nearer to you, that you would amaze us again and again with your kindness, that we would fall in love with you as it were, day after day, moment by moment, by seeing the clarity of who you are and what you have done and continue to do for us. We love you, Jesus. We want to follow you wholeheartedly and faithfully. We pray for your help again this morning to be courageous Christ followers. And we ask this for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name.